Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Vistier Collective, which, as you may remember from our previous interview with its founders, is a platform that allows you to resell your luxury and premium clothes. And we have a little treat for you, Fashion No Filterites. You can save 25 euros or your local equivalent off your first order over 150 euros in the Vestiaire Collective app. You can find it easily in the App Store or Google Play Store, and it's very handy and quick and easy to sell through. I highly recommend it. You just enter at checkout the code FNF25, that's FNF25, and enjoy the discount throughout the month of July. The offer is capped at 200 usages and ends August 1st, so you better be quick. I did a story about home workers in Italy and women in the south of Italy who are being paid extraordinarily low wages to make coats for a number of very high profile Italian brands yeah. and walking into it, one of them was Max Mara and the story broke at like 8.30 in the morning and me sort of gingerly walking into the Max Mara show at 9.30 and taking an espresso and thinking uh, and seeing all the clipboard girls being like, um, you know, freaking out. But, you know, I sat down on the seat and watched the show and was not escorted by Burley's security guards. Hi, I'm Kemi Sharia And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter, where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hello, Fashion No Filterites. Welcome back to Fashion No Filter. Thank you for joining us. Kemi and I are actually in the same room sitting right next to each other for the first time in a very long time. How does it feel? Great. I love your smell. Oh, thank you. It's <laughs> Portrait of a Lady. Honestly, I am loving getting back to normal life. Uh, for those of you who are still confined, I'm sorry, but hopefully we've got a really interesting episode for you today um, that will distract you. Exactly. And obviously we wanted to preempt this conversation that we're about to have by mentioning that like everybody else, I think around us, we've been following very closely what's been going on in the news. We've joined the marches and the protests in our streets, but also, and more specifically in our case, because of the industry we work in, we've been kind of witnessing our industry come very much under fire 
we've been taking the time to read and educate ourselves and look inward because this really this big civil rights movement the black lives matter movement yeah has been feels like a real moment of reckoning i would say and obviously requires a lot more than signing a few petitions and adding some relevant hashtags to our instagram feeds and like everybody else um we have been paying very close attention and looking at ourselves and we just wanted you to know that we've been working on um, a mini series on the topic of anti-racism and diversity in our industry um, and kind of wanted to put together um, a collection of stories and some some ideas on where we can go from here on our on our level so that will be our next uh three episodes and we have a brilliant guest editor who will be announcing next week in the meantime it's time to take fashion's temperature more generally <clears throat> as we're out of confinement so welcome to paris menswear and haute couture fashion week online that is dior is going to show in puglia without an audience Chanel did its first digital cruise in Capri, but in Paris, slash on Instagram. Capri, c'est fini. <laughs> and Rick Owens told the New York Times he would definitely also show, but open quote, how, I'm not entirely sure. He added, definitely not in silence. Or, as New York Times reporter Elizabeth Payton and her team put it in the New York Times opinionated guide to the new Fashion Week, Think and anything goes fruit basket of menswear, womenswear, pre-collections and dolphin acts. Just kidding about the last one. Or are we? So instead of trying to give you an update on who's showing where and what's going on when, because who really understands or knows anything at this point, we've called in the authorities, fashion of filtrites, we give you friend of the pod and very important top New York Times fashion reporter, Elizabeth Payton. Hi! Good morning! How are you? How are you? Good, thanks. Good. I have my coffee and I have my water. Excellent! <laughs> we also have water and coffee. Look well, at I drink my... Oh, Gabby, you're in the same... I didn't realise you got room. I know. It's, um, it's magic. I escaped. I, um, Where my apartment? I used my French passports and uh, nationality to get myself back home for the summer. Past the border. I think that was very smart, very smart. To yeah. be honest, I actually, I, I did lock down as if I was French from the moment the French president announced it, I was locked in my own space and didn't really respect the rules, English style, I really did it the French She's way. She's very so when, French, look at her top. Very French, very French, ooh la la. So when lockdown was lifted, I was like, well, since I've been doing it the French way, I may as well go and deconfine the French way. Exactly. <laughs> So now she's here, and so am I. We haven't done this in the same room for um, the entire lockdown, obviously. Yeah, it's gonna be, I mean, that's it. Did you guys see this morning that Paris Fashion Week's basically going? Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't feel so uneasy about it had I not just listened to a daily yesterday about how every pandemic has always had a horrendous autumn second wave. Like every single pandemic. By the so, way, I love that man who talks about pandemics. Oh, Don McNeil Jr., me too. But, yeah. but the real question is, are you more obsessed with that or Wagatha Christie? 
Oh my God. I'm really sad actually, because I wanted to do a Wagatha Christie story. Yes, I have, by the way, not, I mean, we've all got so much work. I have so much work. I was like, I will put it all aside to do oh, a like to a British person explained. And they were like, mm, no, we, we feel like this needs a bit more. We need to hear a bit more about what's happening before we do a story. It was really sad. Really sad. Oh, sorry to hear that. Guys, this is see, this is so cute. I told you we were gonna want to take a picture, but we can should we do it at the beginning? I don't know if Monica told you, but it was only when James, my husband, who's working upstairs about half an hour ago, was like, Oh, what are you doing this morning? He said, I'm doing a podcast. He said, Oh, thank God it's not a video thing, because your hair. And I was like, and he's and I was like, Oh, there's something wrong with my hair. <laughs> it but it was it was no, it, it was so rude. It was a real like this kind of uh, I think you look beautiful. Oh, I look like I've just got I'm wearing a nightie. But that's a good segue into the introduction for this because we were going to ask you what kind of lockdown um, worker you were. Were you the kind that would only dress the top half for your Zoom meetings or were you writing in your athleisure and, and now you're ready to get your fashion outfits back out? What, what was it like? I have to say I'm a woman of extremes <laughs> and it's either been like absolute athleisure to the max although I do tend to work from normally when I work from home I, I wear athleisure too but then it went in peaks and troughs because about week five of lockdown I suddenly had a complete reaction to that and started putting on makeup doing my hair mm -hmm. putting jeans on a top on just trying to feel more formal and more normal but it just flip-flops it just depends really I haven't ever done I haven't done any of these crazy like full makeup really smart on top and then like you know just knickers on the bottom or anything i've seen too many cases now on on social media where that's gone horribly wrong i you think know, yeah it's best the avoided person, the person gets up to go and get some water or something so you're wearing trousers right now can we i'm actually wearing shorts but they are like vaguely normal shorts that you know <laughs> i'm honored we're honored lizzie you just said that you were working pretty hard during this this time but lockdown was also um i suppose quite quite exciting because you were heralded as one of the most exciting investigative fashion journalists of our generation congrats which we've known for a long time you know the british the british person in me is so embarrassed i just want to crawl under a desk but i spent enough time around americans now to say thank you very much thank you exactly no, it's fantastic news. And, and we were just talking about this before you came on uh, and explaining to Joel, our producer, how rare it is for someone to be able to operate in the fashion sphere and yet have a critical point of view that they are allowed to give because so often brands kind of just don't allow you anywhere near them unless you are going to just clap very enthusiastically. <laughs> so and I think it's become more and more like that. As yeah, well. exactly. So I was going to ask you, what does it take to, because you've got a very impressive career. And I think some of our listeners, although you have been on the podcast before, some of our listeners won't know about you. So we were wondering if you could just take us back and how you got to where you are and, and what it means basically today to be an investigative journalist in fashion. Yeah. So, the, I mean, to answer the first part of the question, which is how I, how I got here, I think I'm slightly um, unorthodox for a fashion reporter in that I trained as a corporate reporter. So my very first job was at the Sunday Times. I was a junior assistant on Sunday Times Style magazine, which I got out of sheer luck. It was 2009, so not unlike the job market that we're facing at the moment. Um, and I was extremely persistent and hung around for about four months and they needed somebody for that um, for that job. In fact, it was to set up the website at the Sunday Times, which makes me feel really old, but that's what we were doing. 
And I did that for about a year, but I'd taken that largely, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, but I took that job largely because it was a job and I had a great time doing magazines, but there was something also calling me back more to a newsroom style role. And then I saw that Vanessa Friedman was hiring for a sort of junior reporter at the Financial Times to launch something called Luxury 360, which was going to be a deep dive into the commercial side of the fashion and luxury industry. Again, for context at this time, you know, business of fashion was a tiny blog, just it ran a one man band. So this wasn't a sort of space in media that had really been explored. Um, so I applied and I got that job, moved in with the FT. And I think what was really interesting for me there was I was given a, a corporate reporter training. So um, I was doing Fashion Week stuff and I was doing sort of the bread and butter of fashion features journalism, but I also spent a lot of time learning how to read a profit and loss statement and learning how to dig through documents that companies don't want you to see. Um, you know, and I was lucky that there were a number of editors there outside the fashion department who sort of paid an interest in in me and making sure I could I could feel comfortable looking at those kind of documents. And I moved to New York. I spent three years in New York um, and I did a lot of retail and consumer work there, which was super interesting. Um, still mainly doing fashion and, and high end consumer sort of goods, but also drifting into kind of other parts of of retail as well. And then the FT told me that they wanted to move me and that in order to become a more well-rounded journalist, I had to move away from fashion, which was quite terrifying at the time because I'd started developing something of a specialism, but I guess I was also quite insecure and felt I could only be a one-trick pony. So I, I moved, I went and did breaking news. So I did a 5.30 a.m. start every day and I literally wrote about anything you can think of oil in Nigeria, the Greek debt crisis, elections, a lot of house building and construction. It was an election year and it was extremely tough. But again, I think it really bolstered my confidence. And that's something I would recommend that any young journalist does is, is sort of test themselves and try writing about other things as well so that you really can you know, feel better about your abilities to communicate effectively rather than just doing one, one, one thing or another. Anyway, after going back and doing this breaking news job in London, Vanessa came calling again. And this time there was a job at the New York Times and they needed someone uh, to cover the international markets and covering fashion and consumer again. And I think I just sort of realized actually that, and this moves well into, I guess, the second question, which is, you know, what does it take to be an investigative reporter? That there were just so many stories to write about in the fashion industry, that this is you know, one of the murkiest and biggest business sectors in the world. And there's just a lot of stories to write about. And, and not that many people writing them. <laughs> and even, you know, so I took this job four years ago. And even, even then, I would say you could probably count the reports on one hand who were kind of trying to cover this kind of space. And I think I just realized that, there, that I had a sort of specialism there. And I, I, I knew a lot of what was going on and there was a lot to do. And so... Just to come back to your question of what it takes to be an investigative journalist, I think I'm very lucky to be at the New York Times at the moment. You know, we've touched on this already, but there aren't many publications at the moment that let you write anything you want and anything you find, as long as it's watertight reporting, of course. So I feel very lucky to have them, you know, as an employer at the moment, because they will normally, pandemic aside, send me wherever I need to go in order to do some of these investigations and, and really have an infrastructure in place that allows us to produce that kind of reporting. But it's also just like a lot of hard work and hustle and occasionally good luck, because ultimately tips 
you know, sometimes fly out of nowhere. Several of the biggest stories I've done have come from an anonymous tip or what starts as an anonymous tip coming into my inbox. God, that I think anonymous tips are about as sexy as you can get in the reporting world. It's all, it's all very Aaron Sorkin. Exactly. But, you know, sometimes these things come to nothing, you know, and that can be very frustrating too. If you get a tip and, and, and you start following it up and you think, oh God, maybe this is a big story. And then, I mean, anything can happen. You can be talking to a lunatic or there's always two <laughs> stories. No, genuinely, you'd be surprised how many story tips turn out to be from people who are unhinged. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I think that luck does come into it. And, and I've been very lucky, I guess, that as I've built more of a reputation covering these kinds of stories, I, that people feel comfortable enough to take a big risk and, and approach me and ask me to look into a situation. I have a question. Do you think that there's a stigma around being a fashion journalist? I mean, you're like extraordinarily clever and educated, you know, Oxford educated New York Times reporter. When you sit around, I don't know, I want to just say like a, a fancy dinner with businessmen and lawyers. Do you feel complexed about working in fashion? I think that, uh, you know, several years ago, this was much more prevalent. And uh, I spent a lot of time gritting my teeth as people would say to me, oh God, all the champagne and jet setting, what a fun job knowing right. I've been up like two in the morning, you know, and actually, you know, anyone who works in fashion knows that there's a lot of hard work um, involved um, and a lot of late nights and, you know, low pay for lots of people. And, and it can be really, really tough. But yeah, there was this, real perception that somehow whatever you wrote about the fashion industry that it somehow wasn't serious or it was fluff i get that less now in person but it's still a very frequent criticism on social media platforms not instagram but mainly twitter where you know if i ever deign to weigh into anything that's not fashion industry related there'll be some bot or kind of anonymous almost always a man saying she's just a fashion journalist you know what does she know anyway oh look fashion fashion team at new york times deigns to weigh into a serious subject um but you know i do think there has been a sea change and i think one thing that has happened in the last 10 years is historically you used to have features journalism in, in, in fashion and then the investigative journalism was always done by separate investigative reporters who would be their own department in a newspaper or, or for a tv station and they would do all investigations um, and now what you're seeing is the emergence of, of of a number of sort of fashion industry specific investigative journalists who can sit side by side with you at a fashion show or well if they haven't been banned or you know if they um they're with you and and, and they're known because they're they're part of the industry and i think that's relatively new and as a result there's also then more interest in some of the sort of story themes that we we cover i'm jumping around here kemi's gonna kill me but just speaking of banning have you ever been banned by a brand for telling it like it is i have never been banned um from a show for telling it like it is <sighs> um i know a lot of people who have been banned so it happens and be under no mistake like it does happen and it happens quite regularly i don't actually attribute it to myself i attribute it to the power of the new york times i i think it's again the protection that i have that actually even when bad stories come out for brands they still respect the new york times and what it stands for 
um, and therefore are willing to let us in. I do remember when I did that story, I did a story about home workers in Italy and women in the south of Italy who were being paid extraordinarily low wages to make coats for a number of very high profile Italian brands yeah. and walking into it, one of them was Max Mara and the story broke at like 8.30 in the morning and me sort of gingerly walking into the Max Mara show at 9.30 and taking an espresso and thinking uh, and seeing all the clipboard girls being like, I'm <laughs> wildly by the way for listeners who can't see, um, you know, freaking out. But, you know, I sat down on the seat and watched the show and was not escorted by Burley's security guard. So that was very, uh, democratic of them but you know it's it, you know it is it is outrageous that that it, you know can happen uh yeah and a, i know a lot of fashion reporters who have been banned as well. i mean it totally happened. for a lot less for a lot less than kind of exposed labor abuses so you know i think there is obviously a lot of abuse of of power um within the fashion industry um but i do think that that is problematic when people can't write independent journalism and feel that the ramifications, especially when there's so many freelancers, for example, who don't necessarily have the protections of a large media institution. It's, it's a troubling state of affairs. Absolutely. I want to ask you about some of the things, because obviously, as you mentioned, you've been very busy. And I think the New York Times has really been kind of coming in with the big stories. But I noticed that one of your biggest, what seemed to be one of your most popular stories was about beauty salons being reopened. And I also saw your triumphant tweet about finally getting your hairdresser appointment. And I think a lot of us felt like that. I um, I also feel like the person I missed the most, apart from my family during lockdown, was my colorist. <laughs> and I just was wondering, um, because obviously we've, seal, we've seen clothes sales that they plunged seriously down during lockdown, but, but DIY and beauty sales have been soaring. And I was wondering if you, um, what you thought about that, if, if you think that means that fashion and clothes are less important to women than grooming, what, and what that means for the beauty industry. I'm, I'm just very curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, I've been fascinated by the split in fortunes between fashion and, and beauty during lockdown. And, um, you know, as you touched on, I wrote a story that sort of looked a little bit about what might be going on there. But I think that grooming has become a priority or has emerged as a priority for for two reasons. One is that you can't underestimate the kind of soothing, pampering aspect to grooming and that actually a lot of people really rely on that trip to the hairdresser or that 40 minute manicure each week to feel, especially women, to feel looked after in otherwise really crazy lives and that's disappeared. And I think that the other aspect is, you know, how we look it gives a really strong sense of, of our identity and, and how we feel. And when the opportunity uh, to maintain that goes away and things like gray roots start to show or your feet start looking like Shrek's grandma or, or whatever, that really, you know, <laughs> drills home that this, this isn't a normal state of affairs. And so I think that's one reason. And I think also with fashion, I mean, there's many reasons. I don't think this is the death of fashion by any means, although we really are facing a catastrophe in terms of what will happen for the industry. But I think clothes as a result just feel more ephemeral, you know, and there was a sense that people really wanted to look after themselves um, and their bodies and actually clothes were something that could wait that suddenly felt like a luxury, not worth investing in. I definitely felt that way on a personal level. Mm -mm. I feel like, I mean, you know, it's quite, it's a, it's a well-known theory called the lipstick effect, which I'm sure, you know, a lot of your readers will be aware of, but it's this understanding that in kind of 
times of, of trouble, uh, consumers tend to look to affordable luxury. And that's what they tend to, to sort of, they spoil themselves, they treat themselves because they feel stressed, but they tend not to gravitate towards the high price things. It's, it's things like lipsticks. And so as a result, sales of things like lipsticks go through the roof. Yeah. So uh, you've been um, really coming in with the big stories throughout these unprecedented times, which is somehow become the official way of describing the pandemic. So from holding brands accountable for their statements made in support of Black Lives Matter, to keeping tabs with all the industry ups and downs as the country, as like country after country was shutting down, which was so stressful that moment. The New York Times has been busier than ever. Do you feel like there's been a spike in readership with this? We're honestly just so curious and you probably can't divulge this information, but is it just us or people starting to want to get back to getting their news from a real reputable source that social media can't necessarily be, you know, can you rely on social media in a crisis like this? I think, uh, you know, I think it's it, it's it's public that the New York Times is is doing very well, and we're seeing you know a strong increase in readers. I think we saw um, half a million new subscribers in the first quarter of this year. That is a number I can divulge. But this is sort of yeah, we've seen a, a trend that was already in play and had been in play for the last three or four years. Um, really gain momentum this year with the pandemic. I think you're right. I think as times become more uncertain and unpredictable, people do. Well, a certain demographic of people do decide that they want to invest in in news, and you know, it, I've, it's a very tough time for the media industry. And another uh, a fact is that forty percent of newsroom jobs in America have been lost since the start of twenty twenty. That is the impact of COVID, um, because the digital advertising model is so precarious, um, and we are very lucky as an institution that we are not as dependent anymore and we're more dependent on subscriptions than advertising. Did you say 40%? 40%. And, you know, again, that goes back to, you know, why it's so important to have, you know, we touched on this earlier, obviously within the prism of fashion, but more generally to have a free press and to have reporters that can hold power to account. Um, and I think, you know, we do our best to do that every day as an institution. I'm, I, there are thousands of reporters here and they all do a fantastic job on their beat. And I think, you know, we have definitely seen an uptick in, in readership, but it's a challenge every day to sift through the 24-7 news cycle um, and, and write about the most important things and make sure that you're covering the things that your readers want to, to read about. And, you know, sometimes they want up to the minute updates about uh, you know say the fashion industry or some of the tougher news stories that are, that are coming out of this current um time or they want something light and they want distraction and mm-hmm. you know how do you make that balance how do you create that balance how do you write about non-pandemic related stories at the moment when it feels like it touches everything and but there is there is a real appetite for for other kinds of stories so that's a, that's a balancing act that i think the new york times and, and all media really is trying to negotiate at the moment Subscribe to the New York Times, people. And we, we've read a lot about how, how committed industry players and brands, you know, like we've, we saw a number of open, uh, open, open letters and, and people saying that really things were about to change and sustainability was going to be taken seriously. And that finally, you know, the world had been put on hold and fashion was ready to follow. Obviously, like this is not the first time that brands and industry players have got together. I remember there was the fashion pack. There were various non-binding documents that have 
happened throughout the years where people commit to change. And I'm wondering, um, in your opinion, whether you think that this pandemic is going to have a positive effect um, on the changes that need to be made within our industry, as we know, like it's no longer a climate change, it's now a climate crisis. And mm. I think that we all are starting to realize that we're out of time. And it's just, I'm just curious as to whether you're optimistic as to the industry can actually change. Um, because as we heard at the beginning of this podcast, um, they've just announced that Paris Fashion Week is, is happening in October. So by the sound of things, things are just going back to usual, right? It's such a mess. And I, you know, the big question that everyone keeps asking us is what's going to happen next? And the truth is nobody knows. The brands don't know. We don't know. You know, we just have to wait and see if there are second waves. Um, but what I, well, if I can split it into a number of sectors, I would say when it, when it comes to diversity, for example, yeah. I feel like there's more momentum than ever before. And I feel like the reckoning that started in the last couple of weeks will continue rippling through the industry. But the key is going to be now that a lot of these brands, establishment brands um, and media companies that have, have started hiring models of color and have outwardly proved looked um, relatively diverse, start looking inside as well. And so big companies like I'm looking at you, Condé Nast, I'm looking at you, Caring, who um, have done a lot of work on public messaging, um, release their diversity stats for kind of across the whole company. And I think it's only when you have that internal change inside your company that you can really enact broader structural change. Whether that's going to happen or not, I think I, I feel more confident about that over over time. It's not going to happen overnight than unfortunately I do about sustainability, where I think we're in a really, really dire situation. You know, I think obviously the conversation, the industry-wide conversation around sustainability had happened, started happening before the pandemic hit. Um, and I do think there were a number of brands who certainly were trying to improve their environmental and social footprint, a lot that weren't, but it was definitely in the limelight. The challenge, of course, now is six months or eight months down the line, a lot of those companies that had started investing in these efforts are financially on the ropes. Some of them are going bankrupt. They have next to no money to invest in anything other than necessarily keeping afloat. Yeah. So will there be a backslide in investment in corporate and social responsibility? I would guess so. There's, there's a lot of papers out there with sort of specialists advocating that people keep investing in their, in their sustainable initiatives in order to sort of secure long-term growth. And, I, and I, I'm wholly behind that. But I think we're not necessarily going to see that kind of make... I don't think we're going to see the progress there that, that we could have done a, a year ago. And that's not to say that I don't think that those things are extremely sort of important. You know, I think, as you guys know, I spend a lot of time on my supply chain investigations. I think they're extremely important. And what's been happening as a result of the pandemic in, in sort of at the manufacturing level is absolutely dire between brands who no longer who say they have no longer have the money either cancelling orders mm -hmm. um, with factories in, in developing countries or cancelling future orders and that just means these factories close and and hundreds of thousands of workers will be left without a livelihood but because you know the, the industry is structured in a way where brands do not own the factories they tend to manufacture from they are not legally responsible for the for the fate of these workers so some of them are doing good stuff a lot of them are not doing good stuff. Mm. Um, but the question is, is whereas a year ago, you could hold people to account and say, 
well, here are your financials. Here are your sales. This is the situation we found. Why are you not doing anything? You know, there is an added layer of complexity now because a lot of businesses are in dire straits. So it's really complicated. Sure. But the really big brands, can they really use that excuse? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think what's interesting is a lot of the bigger brands, you will hear a lot about the bigger brands because I think those generate headlines. But there are a lot of sort of smaller and mid-sized brands that you don't hear anything about. And I think actually increasingly, as I do a lot of work, when a bigger brand gets caught out, they have got big teams and they tend to try and fix things. I'm not saying they're saints by any stretch, but there is a whole demographic of slightly smaller brands, which, you know, who, who haven't signed any, you know, accords or agreements and who aren't necessarily in the spotlight, but who can actually still be extremely powerful. One thing I learned when I was in Bangladesh as well is like, do you got, can you guys name Russian or Indian or Chinese fast fashion brands? Cause there's a lot and they're manufacturing too in these countries and they don't have the same agreements. I can't name one. And, and I, could I, and, and you know, that's probably, you know, bad. From, from my perspective, that wasn't something I'd ever really thought about. I'd been so focused on the sort of Zara's and H&M's. And- yeah, same. So yes, I mean, I'm not for, sorry, I should make it really clear. These brands should be held accountable and they should be working directly with their suppliers to make sure that there is a resolution of sorts, which makes sure that workers have a livelihood or they have some, um, some kind of security. But the challenge is, is because this is an industry that doesn't have a, a you know, a, a large regulator looking at it. And a lot of this stuff is purely on the choice of the brands to sign up to various accords and agreements. It's very hard for, for people to be held to account at the moment. Mm. It's interesting also because I feel like that's also something that you touch upon quite a lot in your, in, in your research and your pieces, the kind of intersection between a brand being sustainable from an ethical point of view and from an environmental point of view. And I think often a brand decides to focus on one or the other. And somehow, I mean, obviously neither is more important than the other. You can't decide that the planet is more important than the people working for you uh, and vice versa. And that's, I mean, I, I noticed that you've actually done a lot of those kind of reports and, and, and even gone into the luxury supply chain, because I think that's also something that is forgotten about a little bit. We often talk about the high street and how problematic it is and how they're not paying their garment workers properly. But you've been doing a lot of work this year in looking at the, the bigger players in the industry, the more the brands that people are spending real, real money, not the brands, sorry, the customers coming in and spending, I don't know, like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand pounds on a, on a bag. Mm. And obviously assuming that it's been made in a, in good conditions. In good conditions in Italy by a factory, in a factory with like craftsmen, et cetera. But that's not always the case. Is that is that right? Totally. I mean, I think, you know, and, and you, this, you're right, this is something I, I try and touch on in the investigations that do look at the luxury side of the business is luxury is not held to account in the way fast fashion is. I think that the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh in 2012 where over a thousand garment workers were killed, you know, really changed the view of fast fashion and and its footprint. And as a result, there's been a lot of focus on large fast fashion retailers and what they can do to improve um, situations for workers. A lot of luxury um, brands do have good working conditions for, for, for workers, but the point is nobody's looking. And there's just an assumption on the part of a lot of consumers that because of the cost of their uh, products, that the workers are guaranteed to be working in great conditions. And the truth is, is there's just so many instances of 
brands not changing the situation until they are held to account. So, um, Cami, you know, I think you were touching a little bit on the investigation we produced in March, which was looking at Indian embroiderers. Now, India is without doubt one of the absolute hubs of embroidery in the world. And that's important because it's a it's a it's a heritage skill. It's a skill that lots and lots of Indian workers have had coming through their families for generations. And so it should be supported there. But the difference was they were being paid an absolute fraction of what a peer in Italy or or France would have been paid. Um, And that comes back down to what we were talking about earlier, which is even in the luxury sector, much like the fast fashion sector, people don't own their suppliers. And when you don't own your suppliers, you are distanced from the responsibility. Now, embroidery houses that we were looking at in April were used by both LVMH and Caring. And part of the investigation looked at the the efforts that these brands were taking or these houses were taking um, to improve the situation. But the question was, was, is just intention enough? And actually, if you are a multi-billion euro conglomerate, with the funds to improve situations, should people still be sitting in airless, windowless rooms earning a fraction? No. Um, so, you know, and that's another area that I think about a lot now, which is, is intention alone enough? Is just having an initiative enough? Is transparency alone enough if it doesn't actually enact change? And I think that's something that will become even more important in kind of coming months and years when, especially for consumers, actually, I think one thing with the pandemic is brand equity has become even more important. I think consumers are scrutinizing brand values more than before. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually it could be dangerous for brands if, they, if they're perceived to be consistently flouting labor rights. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of transparency, I just want to get into what's been going on in the past few weeks with obviously the complete caveat that we are three white girls. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that, you know, we need to, all everyone needs to be addressing the Black Lives Matter movement, especially for us as it pertains to our industry. Do you feel like the Blackout Tuesday sort of initiative all over social media actually means anything? Or is this all going to be about figuring out how companies change from the inside? I mean, I, I know how, how I feel about it, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. So with regards to Blackout Tuesday, I personally didn't participate in it. I mean, at one level, I have to be really careful as a New York Times reporter mm-hmm. and stay objective. So as a rule, like I don't take part in campaigns like that, regardless of my personal opinion. I think the intentions were good, but I feel like we do need to get beyond performative allyship. And I think that, you know, there were other ways to show support, which have been written about extensively now, whether that was a lot of links to various initiatives and funds, and basically whether a blackout was the best idea at a time when um, information should be shared um, and awareness should grow. And I think it's it's interesting, though, because I think brands were called out immediately after that. And you saw this backlash against a number of brands who, you know, took part in publishing supportive messages for the movement, only to see a, a backlash from their own employees of color who said, well, actually, hang on a minute, there's a big gulf at the moment between your outward messaging and the day-to-day reality for a lot of our you know a lot of us a lot of our you know the workers and so we've seen high profile resignations from places like reformation and man repeller and 
you know, I think that's really important. I think the work's only just begun. Do you think that resignation from the people at the top is the answer in these kinds of contexts? You know what? I would say it's a case by case basis because there's a lot of people who quite rightly say is just, you know, someone walking away a cop out. Do people need to, you know, really learn? Is that how you enact meaningful change? And so without trying to, you know, give you a, you know, a fudge the answer, if you like, I think it depends on the place. I think obviously if there has been a certain degree of abuse or mistreatment, that's a different thing of when it comes to a sort of more pervasive underlying cultural issue. But yeah, I think, I think, I think a lot of these companies in luxury who have such influence in terms of external messaging and shaping cultural conversation uh, need to take a good long hard look at themselves when it comes to what they're getting behind publicly and where things are um, privately behind closed doors at the company. I mean, Condé Nast has also been massively in the line of fire during this time. Times, you know, I think there's 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 a big conversation going on internally at a lot of media companies, and I think that's extremely important. I think in the case of, of of fashion, it's so difficult when when this is an industry that's really rooted on exclusivity and gatekeepers yeah. um, to root out root out the kind of behaviour. You know, I think what we keep talking about internally at the, at the times is just basically. Where have there been cases of racism and where have there been cases of abuse of power? And abuse of power happens all the way through the fashion industry. It happens all the way through most industries, but particularly the fashion industry. And, you know, these are some of the discussions that we were having around Me Too two or three years ago. And it's just really difficult. I mean, for some people, it might be clearer. But again, you know, as a reporter, I have to try and build the most um, compelling watertight case possible. And these these kinds of stories are hard. There are stories, you know, that are already out there and there are going to be more stories that come out, um, but it's it's challenging. The, the one thing that we can say, I mean, I, I totally agree with you about the, the Black Out Tuesday and um, the case to be made for clicktivism, but we've never seen um, something this big on social media where I agree it's very important that people put their money where their mouth is and brands kind of co-opting a movement before they've truly done the work and examined what's going on within their own doors and spaces is obviously Gross. quite stupid. Yeah, but the fact that everybody seemed to be re like really looking at the same thing at the same time, I think shows real optimism and that perhaps because the eyes of the world were on this at the same time, then there there is a chance that this this civil rights movement will have a real impact. That would, that would be my hope. Um, and as I said, you know, I think that this has shown momentum um, within our industry in a way that we haven't seen before. But I don't know. We'll have to see. I wish I wasn't so cynical. I wish I, you know, I had a bit more I know, optimism. I think I'm just... You know, I really, really hope we see lasting change, lasting structural change um, in terms of both diversity and sustainability. But we are also facing a great catastrophe in this industry that's looming ahead of us. And I just, you know, I hope that those really important issues, you know, only thrive when the rest of the industry doesn't. 
Yeah. Sorry to be so, so no, 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 I hear that. I mean, it's because it, 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 it's crazy. The more you dig, the more like the more intertwined these things seem to be anyway, because it's it's I was also reading something that you were writing on um, prison labor and the supply chain for the luxury industry and kind of that, that's another problem. How can how can a brand kind of co-opt a movement and say like, yes, all, all life, Black Lives Matter, uh, and then, you know, be using these people, which basically is the equivalent to slave labor, if you actually look at it. What, incarcerated people creating? Yeah, yeah. creating luxury goods and not paying them, uh, not paying them properly. I think it's really interesting that you bring up the prison labor story. So I think I did that last January, maybe like 18 months ago. And I would say that that story has probably generated some of the most debate mm. of any of the stories I've ever done. And I sometimes notice it has wee spikes in readership, you know, even now. And I think it's because it is such a complex yeah. question. I also got a huge backlash from it, like on, on social media. Oh. I tried my best to kind of frame it, um, you know, as objectively as I could. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with prison labor. I think, I think you know, my understanding is in American prisons, there aren't, uh, there aren't that many luxury schemes. I think it's largely like PPE, mm. army uniforms, but you're completely right. The issues remain, which is should incarcerated labor be used um, if it's not regulated? You know, prison by definition is cut off from the rest of society. So if, if you know, people can't see what's going on inside, how can it be regulated? How can you make sure that labor laws are being enacted? But the flip side was, you know, in terms of the luxury brand that I looked at, which manufactures in Peru and Thailand, it's called Carcel. You know, I think there was a genuine, the, the, the women behind it had an, an, an NGO background. And I think they saw that a lot of crime um, performed by women was largely to feed their families and it was low level crime. Um, and saw this as a way of creating a way for these women whilst they were locked away from their families to generate an income for them. And, yeah. you know, actually the systems they put in place to show me how it couldn't be corrupted, the creation of bank accounts, et cetera, you know, meant that this money was going to, to them and they were also being sort of trained with a skill set that they could potentially use when they were released. The ish, that the intention there is good, yeah, yeah. but it does go back to can that be abused? And the and the you know the truth is yes. And then don't of course don't even let's start on what's going on in China in the Uyghur camps, which is you know endemic and widespread. So you know I think using um, enforced labor is is very very problematic. Stating the obvious there, but yeah, yeah. I mean it's, it, I mean it also goes back to privatizing um, incarceration systems because obviously if you're trying to make money off locking people up which is the case in america it's not the case here in france or in the uk i believe but that's to me that there's something completely unethical and inhuman from make, making a profit of putting people in just the fact of putting them in jail um yeah. and that's disgusting as well <laughs> well especially when you look at the breakdown of incarcerated americans particularly yeah. it's that's where it gets really weird. But let we, it, Kemi and I are going to be in a, in the next um, three episodes delving yeah. more into these subjects. And with you, Lizzie, there's so much that I want to cover that I want to move on a little bit yeah. to the fashion calendar. Hello, Hello Matt. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? So I just want to start by asking you a like really general question which is doing the work that you do, how would you feel about two collections a year rather than four, for example? 
for me personally, you know, I think, I, you know, I think the challenge is, is, is say hypothetically that some of the initiatives that have recently been advocating for kind of broader structural change in the industry, whether that's a shift in the calendar or reducing the number of annual collections or changing when and how fashion shows are presented, um, how, how that would be managed in a way that meant there wasn't a sort of drastic fallout and further bankruptcies um, and job losses. Because if you do reduce the volume you're you're creating at the moment does that necessarily mean that the same number of people are you know we, we, we're already delving down into into thorny territory although you know yes at root we have a huge um inventory problem and one of the biggest inventory problems at the moment you know is is the spring summer 20 collections that just haven't been sold as a result of the pandemic right. i think actually i only because i had it up this morning i'm going to quickly dig it out so according to mckinsey the value of excess inventory from spring summer 2020 collections is currently estimated at 140 billion euros worldwide it's 51 billion dollars in europe alone so that's almost triple the level in a normal year and you know where is all that stuff going to go and i think that the, that the fact that there is such a glut of stuff shows that we are massively overproducing yeah. god knows where that's going to go but at the same time if you were to suddenly just cut from four seasons you know four collections to two you know what what impact would that have what knock-on impact would that have on workers in the industry and that would be, have to be something we looked at very closely but for me personally you know and i'm sure for you guys as well and this is a very in industry um specific point of view I'm tired. I am tired of being on the road for four months of the year. I am, I, you know, I am conscious of my own carbon footprint as I go from A to B. I don't want to sound like, you know, oh, my glass slipper doesn't fit my foot. I'm very conscious every day of how lucky I am to have the job that I have and, and to travel often in the way that I do. And I also have to be a bit careful here because I don't want to get in trouble with Vanessa. But, um, you know, for me, the, the value of the job that I do is really is the reporting that I do mm -hmm. um, elsewhere. Fashion Week is very valuable for ma you know maintaining um, your network and sometimes meeting people. And I think it is important to see kind of what comes next. But I think there are other members of the industry for whom being there with a bottom on the seat in person is more important than it is for me. So you know if if I was to see less that would be no skin off my nose but I also appreciate it's a core part of my job description and that's not something I can shirk. Um, but, but we've seen we and, and I, I know we said that um a priori which I don't know how to say in English but it looks like Paris Fashion Week is maintained in October but for the moment all the fashion weeks that were supposed to happen this summer so last week in London uh, this mm. week Couture and Men's in Paris those have all been cancelled and turned into digital events um, what did you think of those? Did you think that those have any chance? Because obviously, if they're if they're bringing back the physical format, surely that means that they felt that these are not strong enough. Um, is that what you think as well? Yeah. So I the, the only uh, digital fashion week that I've seen and reviewed was the London Fashion Week, which yeah. took place last weekend. Um, which you know normally is the time of year when just menswear shows yeah. are shown in London, but it became um, for both genders was obviously digital only. If I was to be charitable, I would say that it was a placeholder and should be seen. <laughs> uh, if, if I was not being so charitable, I would say that it was a bit of a mess. I, I sympathize with the British Fashion Council because I think that they faced a, a difficult decision in March or April, which is, do you completely cancel a showcase, which for some brands is extremely important in terms of selling their collections and making sure they get stocked? 
But at the same time, a, a huge number of these brands are in absolute chaos because of social distancing, which means they can't get together and design because social distancing means they can't manufacture, you know, and as a result, you know, you had next to no brands having produced any new collections, which is understandable. Uh, I wondered to an extent about the additional pressure that might be placed on already very stretched brands um, to produce uh, new content for a platform at a time when they're battling to keep their businesses afloat. There was some really nice, you know, there were some really nice pieces of content. It was, it was, you know, a lot of poetry readings and photo exhibitions, um, which I enjoyed. But I guess my overall question at the end of it was, well, couldn't I have just seen these things on their Instagram feeds? Right. That's what I've been struggling to understand. Yeah. Which then brings me on to, to I guess, then the decision by Paris this morning to, to go ahead with a physical fashion week. Because I guess where I left my London review was, can you have a fashion week without physical fashion shows? And at the moment, the jury is out. And, it, you know, clearly, despite the movements, which have largely come from independent fashion brands in the last couple of months, advocating for massive changes to the way that the industry is run, the big fashion houses, your Dior's and your Chanel's, you know, Vuitton's and your Chanel's, exactly, have decided that uh, come what may, yep. that is a structure that needs to stay um, in place. And as a result, you know, the, the show must go on. What I did think coming away from London, though, and what may happen in Paris, because we, we really still have very sketchy details about what will actually take place in October, is whether they'll do socially distanced runway shows and, and whether that runway show aspect, the theatre of the runway show is still really important with or without an audience. You know, I don't know if you guys saw this week, this amazing picture of a, of a classical music concert taking place on a stage and they filled this beautiful European opera house. I feel like it was Madrid, but I'm probably getting that wrong, with trees. Oh, wow. Um, it looked amazing. And, you know, I think, you know, so at one level, I think if fashion shows keep happening or these brands decide they keep happening, but at the moment it's the audience that's in question. And let's not forget, media budgets have been slashed. A lot of people's income been reduced. Can people come to Paris in the same numbers that they have done historically? You know, how will brands think innovatively about the content that they are producing for these online streams? So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I think that, that, that just allowing brands to create, you know, narrative content uh, it, it is not something that's going to be sustainable. I see why it happened, you know, for this season. But come September, I think we'll have to see something dramatic. I'd love to see a brand like completely break the mold. Like I'd love to see a brand, you know, create a little mini quibby style like soap opera or something yeah, where yeah. a musical or a film or something that's different i agree that was just my um cammy's obsessed with musicals <laughs> i mean aren't we all but it was interesting to see i saw dior announce yesterday that they're showing in puglia with no audience and that they're also working with all local um italian artisans to try and restart the um, the, the industry in that local area, which has suffered so much because obviously they were the first to close down in Europe. And obviously they're relying on, they said working to a deadline is going to really, it kind of motivates people and shows them that things are happening again. And it's, that's also really important for morale and for people who, this is their livelihoods, this is their life. Yeah, I also- This is a great point. And I think that, you know, exactly the example that you just outlined is a way in which this current system can be improved for good, which is, you know, okay, audience aside, how can fashion shows be put on in a more sustainable way, using local artisans, you know, creating jobs or, or what have you for the, for the local environment? I think that's a great point. And, you know, hopefully we see more of that. Yeah. Yeah. We have Joel texting us saying we have to wrap up. 
Oh, Joel. <laughs> God, Joel. But so we wanted to end on a fun, a fun question. So do you have like a capsule wardrobe? Uh, you know, I always think of Joan Didion, who regular listeners know we're obsessed with, where you have like a list of things that you know you can pack and wear on the road because you travel so much and you always look elegant. And I'm curious. Curious. Um, well, thank you for saying I look elegant. I don't always feel that elegant. I guess, you know, I have different outfits for different work modes. You know, we touched on right at the beginning of this episode um, that I'm sort of do live in active wear at home yeah. um, when nobody can see me. And, you know, there's normally a couple of days a week when I am in London where I am writing from home. And so that's what I'm in. I guess with fashion week, you know, my job doesn't require me to change outfits in the way that some other, you know, jobs do um, <laughs> so, like you guys have to so, um you know but I guess what do I wear I, I think that a black blazer and a, and a white t-shirt and a really nice skirt from like Dries van Noten or someone with a pair of boots goes a long way I tend to do that um I don't wear jeans because you know they always just cut into my belly when you're sitting up and you know either in the car or in a bachelor and I'm I've, always said it, I've said it for a long time jeans are not meant to be comfortable and you can what they look great and you wear them with Lots of like pizzazz, but they honestly are not the most comfortable. Because they're better, because better jeans aren't stretchy. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. So, so no jeans on my fashion week uniform. And then when I'm out in the field, it does change a lot depending on where you are. But I would say, you know, I tend to always have hand sanitizer. I tend (laughs) to have a headscarf, like a scarf, because often I just need to pull it up depending on where I am. And I tend to wear sort of like loose cotton clothing. If it's more like meetings, then, you know, I've got a couple of wrinkle free white shirts and I'll just wear them with a pair of pants. Or actually, I often wear dresses like loose, very loose sleeve dresses because it can be really, really hot. Yeah, I guess that's but it sort of chops and changes. I I probably should get better at uniforms. I did. I won't. When I was in Bangladesh, I bought an amazing new um, jumpsuit and I thought it was a really good idea. And I put it on and obviously within two hours on endless car rides and jumping in and out, I realized this was a huge mistake um, and learned my lesson with that, that you need something practical. well, jumpsuits are practical because you put it on and that's the, that's you done. Yeah, but, but as you say, pragmatically on, on, on the field, it's not it's not really what you want to be unzipping. It has some sort of thing. On that very highbrow note, <laughs> Lizzie, thank you so much for chatting to us. And uh, we look forward to discovering what fashion has in store for us because as you have really um, emphasised, no one knows the heck what's going on. So let's just... At least we know that it's exciting. But if anyone knows anything, it's you. So we're really, really pleased to have had you on. But we, we are doing our best. And, you know, it's great to, to speak to you guys. And let's keep in touch. Thank you, Elizabeth Payton of The New York Times. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Payton, for coming and explaining to us a little bit more about what the heck is going on. Yeah, I feel like we learned a lot there. A lot, yeah. And as the show must go on, I guess, so... We're going to see what's happening in the next few weeks and months. And, and let's, just, uh, let's just all be paying a close attention to our industry and hopefully also holding brands a little bit more accountable. I think that's something that mm-hmm. it seems to be more prevalent in our industry. And I'm, There's been a lot of talk about asking brands before working with them if they are holding up their end of the diversity promises that mm-hmm. they've made. And I think that privately, that's a really great way of moving forward. I mean, there are so many things to be discussed, but all of this TBD in the next three episodes, which we will be announcing the guest editor of soon. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, and thank you for uh, listening. <laughs> we wanted to thank Vistia Collective for supporting this episode. Thank you so much for working with us on this one. And uh, for everybody else, we look forward to seeing you for the next mini series, which will be, as Monica mentioned, on the topic of diversity and anti-racism in the industry. Uh, And in the meanwhile, please rate, review and uh, subscribe to our channel on podcast app and see you soon. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. 
Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OSEAMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.